Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. This is episode 69 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and today I'm chatting with Eva. Eva runs a fashion brand called Eno Black. And she started the entire line with absolutely no industry experience. Her story is really, really fun and inspiring, and I know you guys are going to enjoy it. It all started back in early 2000s when she went to school at Stanford. And yeah, as you guessed, Stanford is not really known for fashion. So she kind of figured out what she could do to a little bit sort of mold her degree to her interest in fashion. And from there, she got her start doing some really random styling gigs, which involve a hysterical story about model mayhem and her spam folder in her email inbox. Um, From there, she figured out how to go into production and, and design this collection. She started in LA, things weren't going right. A random trip to Bali for her honeymoon led her to meeting this amazing tailor and woman who literally works on the porch of her house sewing custom garments. That relationship turned into just the relationship she needed to get her production off the ground and build her, her collection, Eno Black. Um, she walks us through everything that happened, the ups and downs, of the the journey and launching her brand, how she's built an online following, how she's built some some excitement and some audience doing markets and selling wholesale in LA. And she really walks us through everything she's done to get her brand off the ground. I know you guys are really, really going to love her story. As always, I will remind you to share this podcast with your friends. If you know anyone out there who is thinking about getting started in fashion or who already works in the industry and just wants some extra insights and stories behind the scenes on what it's like to be a freelancer, what it's like to have a job, what it's like to launch your own brand, and also the exact step-by-step processes and strategies you can use to get there, you guys know this podcast is where you find all that insight. So if you know anyone out there, take 30 seconds right now, hit pause and text this episode or this podcast, the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, to a friend of yours who you think would enjoy listening. I really, really appreciate you helping to spread the word, and I know that your friends who you share this with will be helpful as well. I can't tell you how many times people tell me, I wish I heard about this two years ago, three years ago. Um, So help them find out about it now. I am grateful, and I know they will be grateful as well. To access the show notes for today's episode, visit sfdnetwork.com slash 69. Now on to the interview with Eva. All right. Welcome, Eva, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Can you start out by introducing yourself and letting everybody know who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Um, my name is Eva Osborne, and I am the founder of Eno Black, and we are a, a sustainable uh, clothing line based here in Los Angeles. Awesome. Okay, so let's kind of start from the beginning. How did you get started in this industry? Did you go to fashion school? Did you work at a brand? Like, what does your background look like? I, I didn't do any of the things that I um, I should have. Honestly, <laughs> I, I I received a full ride to Stanford University um, for college, and so um, as 
I'm sure most people are aware Stanford isn't the biggest um, fashion design school. So, <laughs> um, and I didn't kind of, as an 18 year old signing, I didn't really have the wherewithal that I wish I had had um, as far as looking into school and making sure that it actually had the program that I wanted to, to pursue. Mm. Um, so when I was there, I started out as product design, but um, that's, that's a pretty uh, engineering heavy degree at Stanford. So um, I switched over to STS, which is science, technology, and society. It's like studying the intersection of the three. And um, I, I liked STS and, and what drew me to it was that I got to kind of design my own degree and it was a little bit softer as far as studying the, um, the implications of setting up uh, manufacturing in foreign countries and working with the local community and how things um, can translate and focusing on um, kind of the human aspect um, alongside that, that designer aspect, which was really important to me. So, um, and then I, I also took like basically every uh, clothing or apparel, um, kind of, which is all um, costume design um, class that I could. Um, but it, there was like two and I just kept on taking them. The <laughs> so. same classes over and over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was basically just like time in the workshop. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> wait, because awesome. before we hit record, you made a comment to me that you were like, I knew what I wanted to do with this brand or with something in fashion since I was 17. And then here you are 18, getting a full ride scholarship to Stanford, which congratulations, by the way, that's not an easy feat. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as you said, not really known for being a fashion focused school. So like, what was your thought process behind that? Cause you had this idea in your head of what you wanted to do and then you go to the school and then it seems like you almost tried to mold the degree a little bit around your area of interest. Yeah, I honestly, so it was an, I was I was on um, an athletic scholarship. I, I went to Stanford for rowing, and that's what I was recruited for. Okay. And I think at the the time I was just, and my mom, both well, obviously I had never done this, but my mom had um, had never really navigated going to a a good school either. So it was it was kind of like uh, or like a prestigious school, and everybody just hears that name, and you're like, oh, like if you have the opportunity to go to that school, you go. Right? Sure. Sure. Um, and I think that's, I think I just kind of went on autopilot with it. Mm. Um, instead of taking that step back and, and really making sure that, um, it was a school that offered the program that I, I, I wanted to pursue. Sure. Um, and also I think I, while I had the shape of, um, or kind of an outline of, of what I wanted to do with Eno, um, I've always been a person that, that kind of, um, if I can't find a path, I'll just kind of make one myself, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, hack it out of the woods. So, um, so I, 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 I guess, I don't know, honestly, what my 18 year old brain was thinking, <laughs> but it, it worked out. Uh, honestly, Stanford brought me so many amazing things and, um, and rowing there was amazing. Um, just the the level of, of competition was insane. I met my husband. I have some of the most amazing friends and memories and, and just an insane education, which is kind of um, 
that I wouldn't have gone elsewhere, you know? Yeah. So, so, um, so when, when, where are we at in a timeline? Like when did you go, when was college? Uh, college was straight at 18. Like 2000 and what? Oh, oh, time. Like in the, the, the grand scheme of things. <laughs> um, it was 2006. Okay, so 2006 to 2010, and then where does your fashion brand, Eno Black, fall into all of this? Like, when did you really get that kick started and off the ground and kind of get to where you are today? And I kind of want to hear about that whole journey. Yeah, so what happened, I, okay, <laughs> I'm going to bring it really far back, but um, when I was in college, my mom and I went down to um, Sayulita, and, um, which is a little coastal town in Puerto Vallarta. And, um, I met this woman that had started a nonprofit that worked with the Weechol Indians. Um, basically she, she, she went to study them, um, I think for her anthropology, like master's thesis at UCLA and, um, ended up falling in love with one of the tribesmen, which is like a major no, no, but, um, <laughs> she and her, her like love, um, set out to improve the lives of the the natives. So they um, started teaching business English and business Spanish um, and um, helping with like basic math um, as well as farming and connecting like the elders with the younger generation because all of the Weechol were basically just going into um, factory work. Um, instead of fostering their really amazing uh, artisan um, kind of traditions and and skills, uh, those those were just being lost. Um, and so she had started this whole program, and there was uh, a resource center um, down there. And I just I fell in love with what she was doing um, and um, the aspect of like empowering people, but then also working with design. And and I've always loved. Um, traditional designs um and things with back like a, a history things with history basically um whether it's vintage or or um like a, a traditional um garb around the world um so i like tried to convince my mom as a sophomore i believe to let me stay in mexico and sophomore in high school <laughs> no, no, this was in college. This oh, in college. college. Okay, yeah. okay. I was like, I just want to stay here, and I'm going to work with this. This is what I want to do anyways, and, like, I'll just be over here. My mom was like, there's zero chance that you are doing that. <laughs> but after you finish your your um, scholarship, you can – I'll support you in doing whatever. So after I finished um, my um, – my my four years of, of my scholarship, I still had to write my thesis, um, but I went down and worked with her and um, and um, the Weechol and um, had an amazing time. And that kind of structured, like gave um, gave this idea that I had when I was sixteen, as far as combining um, uh, design as well as um, service. Um, it, it gave it kind of like a tangible form, which was really nice to see somebody that had already executed on something that I, I really admired and and respected and um, also thought was really fun and looked like a, a nice way to live your life. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of me trying to like tinkering with the idea of, of how I was going to fit um, 
uh, creating items into um, working with the community. Um, and so then I moved back to, or I, I finished my thesis. I went back to school and finished my thesis and then moved to Los Angeles um, to kind of be closer to the fashion industry. I started working in um, marketing, specifically email marketing. I, um, I handled that and um, a lot of the analytics for Look, which is a Nordstrom company, mm-hmm. um, for a few years. Um, and really like that, but it's, it was, a, it was getting to the size of, um, the company where I just, I wasn't, um, getting the experience or the exposure to, to the process. Um, also it's, it's a, it's totally retail. Like you, you're eliminating like all the interaction with the design designers after, uh, yeah. at that point. So, um, so I moved on, I got an offer to actually start it or work with a man that was starting a steel trading platform. So I did that. And, um, that's when I started really working on trying to figure out how to do, um, you know, and make, you know, a, a reality. Okay. Um, and started styling on the side. Um, and, um, that was, that was like a really big thing for me. Cause I, um, not only did I get to work with like smaller brands and designers, but, um, for me as a small brand myself now, knowing how to style photo shoots, put them together. Um, I shoot everything myself, um, even editing. Like I just, I have all these amazing friends, um, and creatives from, um, back in the day from doing all that. And, um, and just being able to pick their brains and, and ask questions about, um, what kind of editors they use and, and the best ways to touch up photos. And so there's like fixing photos and all that stuff. So, um, so that's, that's been huge for me and, and really helps I, like me and my confidence when I, um, was launching, you know, um, in the sense that I, I could do it all, you know? Yeah. So, okay. So when did you like air quotes, like officially launch, would you say, I just want to get a better sense of where we're at in time. Uh, a year ago. Oh, very recent, 2017. Yeah, yeah, yeah oh. very recent. Okay, yeah. so you um, you made the comment that you like just started working with some small independent startup indie, however you want to term it, brands to do some styling and get some experience. Like, what did that really look like? Because I, again, before we hit record, you and I had a little chat, and you made some comments of like, you know, I was trying to get experience, and I was offering to certain brands to work for free just to gain the experience, and I was getting a big no, or like, we don't want to let you close to our our product or our. our ideas or our process or whatever. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think there's a lot of people out there listening who may be in a similar situation to you as in that they're working at a job that you know, maybe is related to fashion. I mean, you were working at a, a Nordstrom's company, but like they're still pretty disconnected from everything in terms of like if they want to start their own brand, how do they even know where to start or get some experience or understand the process? Um, so can you tell us a little bit like how that all started and, and how you got some of that base fundamental knowledge to kickstart you doing your own thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with styling, it, it happened pretty serendipitously. Um, I, um, for our wedding, I wanted <laughs> to find a photographer, um, that had a little bit more of a, a fashion, um, kind of forward eye. It actually wasn't our wedding. That's a total lie. It was our engagement party. Mm. <laughs> and, um, 
I knew that there was a lot of photographers um, out there just looking for content. Um, and uh, we had, we, we were shooting, or not shooting, sorry, our engagement party was at uh, my in-law's house, which is this beautiful house um, up off of Mulholland. So it's like on the cliffs and it's stunning. And um, we had a really fun theme where it was all florals and um, and um, it was just going to be a really fun party. So I was looking for um, a, um, a photographer that would kind of shoot it like it was a, oh, and we had, my husband had somehow secured a, a vodka. I'm giving you the most long-winded answers. I'm so sorry. But <laughs> basically, I like, I made a model mayhem profile and for um to find a photographer and called myself a stylist and uploaded some photos and uh, just from my own instagram and um i found a photographer and then kind of just forgot about the profile um and checked my email like in my spam one time and saw <laughs> that i had all these messages <laughs> from there and logged in and there is like 10 messages of people asking to to work with me as a stylist as a stylist wait I love this story (laughs) it was hilarious and so um one of the first women I met with I just really um clicked with she was awesome and she lived just down the street from me so we went and got coffee and just kind of hung out and she was um she had just relocated from New York actually and uh asked me to um to work with her and I I used all my own vintage I didn't like I I didn't know even how to do a poll at that time so I um I just kind of made it up and styled it with all this vintage that I had which is really great vintage but um then it ended up getting published like the first shot shoot that I did was um was published like picked up by a magazine so she uh, was the model, you styled the whole shoot, and then you had she, a photographer. She was the photographer. So she, she was the photographer. photographer. And she had a relationship. I think a really important thing, especially if you're trying to get into styling, um, a really important thing is um, initially is, um, and what really worked well for me is is having photographers that already have that relationship with the agency. Mm-hmm. Um, because what they're doing is, um, it's kind of a symbiotic relationship, um, for photographers that are, um, trying to make a name, um, and also connect with an agency. And then same thing kind of goes for the stylist. It's how you build your, um, doing these like test shoots is how you build kind of your portfolio and your, um, your, your Rolodex of people. Um, but, um, so the photographer has, the relationships with the um, agency, modeling agency, and um, they um, can request um, new faces. So these are girls that um, don't have um, don't have enough images in their portfolio yet. Right. Um, they're like a lot of them are like fourteen or fifteen, um, and um, they um, the agency sends them. There's no like fee or anything like that to work with them because. Like I said, they just need content. Um, I, I mean, you have to be a reputable photographer. But um, then the photographer sets up a team that also just wants imagery, like wants to build out some aspect of their portfolio. And typically it's structured around some kind of um, 
concept or theme that they've put together um, and everybody agrees on it and all that stuff. Um, okay. But then also everybody kind of brings their own flair to it. So um, like for me, especially start when I was starting out because I, I was using all vintage, um, I think that really played in my favor because um, a lot of the, the stylists that are, are starting out there, you're limited to what you can pull or what you can provide. Right. So, um, if, if you, you don't have a portfolio, then not many brands are going to let you pull stuff. Right. Um, and so I wasn't limited to that because I, um, I had this whole crazy collection of my own. And then if there was anything I needed to fill, I was just down at the Goodwill or at my sewing machine, like kind of <laughs> conjuring it up, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, was, it ended up being super fun. My second shoot ended up getting a cover. Like it was, what? It was, a, it was who a are little, you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was awesome. And it's, it's so much fun to be on set with so many like crazy creatives and, yeah. and people that just are like masters and think so much about their trade. Um, because they're applying it in different forms every day. So to get to pick those people's brains as far as like, I, I was always like over at the makeup lady be like, so what do you think about this? <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is such an yeah. interesting like start to the journey. And I love how it came in your spam folder from Model Mayhem. That is like such a great like beginning. Yeah. Um, I'm like, of course, Model Mayhem's going into your spam. Yeah. Um, we've yeah. talked about some funny Model Mayhem <laughs> stories before on the podcast about models showing up and smiling and oh gosh, they have braces. Um, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'll link to that episode in the show notes, you guys. It's hysterical. That's but, awesome. um, but okay, so then moving kind of forward from there, you got like all this base skill set, which was has proven to be priceless for you to be able to style and do all your own photo shoots, which can be a very, very expensive adventure um, if you have to hire a bunch of people. And obviously, you still have a photographer and models and stuff, but you got all this under your belt in terms of learning how to do it yourself. Then what happened in terms of like, how are you figuring out or thinking about starting your own brand? Are you sketching on the side? Where are we at? And what's kind of the next steps to get Eno Black moving along? So um, the biggest thing was just kind of these, I had a list and sketches of, um, of things that I really wanted. Um, uh, and, and that's still to this day is kind of what you know is all about it's basically just this gap that I have in my closet that I I want to fill um so what we started out with was was a really simple wrap dress at the time I, I couldn't find any wrap dresses that were kind of walked the line that that weren't like matronly or like overly revealing mm, basically interesting like I wanted something that was just like straight down the middle I could wear anywhere because I don't have a waist so I love that wrap dresses give me a waist I love how comfortable they are I love that they adjust and that it's um it like it it is whatever you want it to be um and I couldn't find that and I definitely couldn't find it in like a cotton or a linen or a natural fabric um I um I was really struggling with that. Um, and so, um, this is kind of flash forward. I was still styling, but, um, my husband and I 
for our and or for sorry for our engagement went to sorry again no for our honeymoon <laughs> went to Bali and um, at this point I had been trying to get things made I had worked with a couple pattern designers in Los Angeles and um, was also still like trying to like offer offer like intern kind of stat level. Um, help with people um, as far as local designers and stuff like that in LA and um, had some samples made in Los Angeles for a wrap dress but it just kind of never uh, it it never worked out like things were always just a little off as far as the design or or me understanding how I would go into production and actually scale it and, and make it something tangible from just that sample you know um and so I'd kind of put it on the wayside for a little bit. Um, and then like a year later, we go on our, our honeymoon. I'm in Bali and um, I get, I found this home tailor that I really liked and was super sweet. And I was like, oh, this would be a great time to, to just get the dress for me made, you know. And um, so I did that and it was awesome and I loved it. And had about like 10 dresses made, um, again, just for me. And then there was a couple extras from the surplus fabric that I brought home thinking I would give them to my girlfriends. And I gave those to my girlfriends, but then also they were taking all of the ones that I made for myself. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, well, maybe this is like, maybe this is worth looking into. So I, um, called up the woman that had made the dresses for me initially and asked her if she was able to do kind of cottage manufacturing, like small batch manufacturing. And she was. The woman in Bali. Uh, yeah, the woman in Bali. And um, then I talked to the um, the fabric um, supplier where I'd gotten the fabric from. And they actually had this whole basement of um, dead stock fabric. So that's all recycled fabrics. Um and which is I was really intent on using um and then um I I went back to Bali like a a month later and, wow and that was a year ago that started it all so wow. okay so yeah. just quickly because a lot of people out here listening are are really in early stages and um are still learning some of the terminology tell us what dead stock means so dead stock um is kind of an umbrella term but it um it's basically cast off fabric. It's it's fabric that's um been put aside for whatever reason, and and so a lot of times it, it it's being saved from um from a landfill or whatever. Um, for example, if you have a like a high end brand, like we have a fabric that's actually from um, Gucci. It's vintage mm. Gucci. Wow. So with like a Gucci, um, they they'll make an item and um, once they're done making like with their production run, um, if they have bolts of fabric left, they don't want to just put that out on the market because then um, somebody could pick that up and copy their item. Exactly. Sure. Right. Um, so a lot of those higher end brands will actually throw away the fabric, um, which is, terrible like so sad yeah um on so many levels um but our we lucked out and have this amazing supplier that is able to um by contract secure these bolts of fabric and um and kind of sit on them until um whatever the agreed upon terms are 
and then um, releases them for sale. So, oh, so do um, they just have to like wait a certain amount of time? Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, cool. it's waiting for the trademark stuff. I think it's it's waiting a certain amount of time, and then for um, there's there's smaller brands um, and um, other instances where it's just it's it's smaller quantities of fabric. So um, he'll just buy it up off of. Um, of manufacturers and maybe they don't care if somebody else uses right. it, but, um, but you are, you're only working with like 40 meters as opposed to 400. Sure. Um, like some unlimited brand. supply. So yeah. It, it limits your scalability, but as far as an environmental, uh, from an environmental, um, perspective, it's, it's great. And I also, I really love that it makes our pieces more unique. Um, it's not, I love Reformation, but um, but it's not a Reformation where you're going to a wedding and seeing uh, like a girl in um, like five girls in the same dress. It's, right. Uh, if you do see somebody in the same you know dress, like it's something to be kind of stoked on and yeah and treasured because you're part of a little club. There's only like twelve of each dress or twenty of each oh, dress. Oh yeah, I think, so in our, cool. Yeah. Okay, so you go to Bali to work with this woman who just by chance made you a few custom dresses and then all of a sudden, surprise, has this amazing basement treasure trove. And like, what is that? Like, what are you thinking at this point? Did you think about how are you going to actually sell this or what does that actually look like in terms of getting your sizing figured out? Are you focusing just exclusively on this one item, the wrap dress in a couple different fabrics and focusing on like a hero item or, you know, what, what are you thinking at this stage and what are you doing to get towards each of those next steps? Yeah. So the initial batch was just, it was pretty small. Um, I did the wrap dress in a short and a long version um, and, um, just in a handful of different fabrics. Um, and I also did a men's button down shirt. Um, because again, my husband, um, really wanted to wear like kind of that short, um, button down, but it was always a little too festive or too businessy. So, mm. um, I, I started making that in, um, these linens and cottons that were relaxed, but also, um, like cool and modern. So, um, those were the three products that I started with and, um, and I still have until like, I just added two products a couple months ago and I'm adding, um, like three more. Um, but in general with, um, with the way that I am kind of approaching everything, um, I, I really want people to be able to rely on finding, um, an item that they love. Um, even if it was a couple years ago, they might not, they're probably never going to find the same print, but, um, to know that they can rely on us for fit and for style. Um, I think is really important because there's so many things that you fall in love with nowadays and, um, then they're just gone. Like you, if, if you want to keep it, you'd have to buy like 10 of it you yeah. know? <laughs> or like, or have access to a, a personal tailor. Um, yeah. so, um, it was really important to me with, with building, you know, that we build, um, or all of the, the SKUs were, um, were focused more on a classic style than, um, than trends and just, um, adding to add. So, yeah. I, um, I take a lot of time and, and, 
and um, try to be really deliberate with the, the style I add. Cool. And just on a side note, like how is this all self-funded? Yeah. It is. Okay. Uh, so on the side, I also do still, um, that's been fading out more and more, but that also coming from a tech background in marketing, um, it's really helped, um, with, with running my website and doing all that stuff. I was able again to do it, um, all by myself. Um, uh, so that, that was really awesome. I think as far as advice, the biggest thing for me has been just coming up with ways to leverage the skills that I do have because I don't have that traditional designer skill set, but I have a lot of other really great skills. And so it was just a matter of coming up with creative ways to, to actually utilize them in, in the company that I wanted to build. Yeah. And so, okay, so you had these couple items and you were hyper-focused in terms of what your assortment was going to be, which I think is fantastic. Um, And definitely something I've seen a lot of successful brands do is just really stay tight. Um, Yeah. So then did you just like put up an e-commerce site and poof, you like what, how did this all work? Because I think, not I think, um, a lot of times people think, oh, I can just set up a Shopify and put up these beautiful pictures and people are going to start buying. Uh, but it, it's not always that easy. So what did that look like in terms of actually launching and maybe generating some buzz or getting some traffic and ultimately generating sales to continue to you know build and sustain the business? Yeah, I, well, so initially, I have to say that I totally did what you just <laughs> said. Okay. As far as just whipping up a website and be like, okay, now people can buy things. Um, and um, I mean, that works to a certain extent, um, as long as you create a little bit of buzz. Um, but that definitely wears off. So um, it's, it's a matter of kind of tapping that along um, and maintaining that. And um, I do that through a, a number of different things, like having little sales at our studio. Um, every time I bring back new fabric or have new fabric um, uh, in the different styles, I, um, I host a little kind of open house where people can come try things on and, and, um, and get some FaceTime with the items. Um, and then I've also been doing, um, for the last, I guess, six months, um, a lot of markets. Um, I think with a lot of, um, smaller brands, um, and just online shopping in general, um, there are so many options out there that, um, that it's, it's hard to make a case for yourself over something that people know. And um, especially with dead stock fabric, um, because we don't know the exact, um, uh, the exact like breakdown of the material, um, and composition. Um, it's uh, like, it's not just saying it's a cotton dress. It's saying that it's a dead stock, like cotton blend. So, um, it's been really great for people to, at the markets and um, get to, to feel everything because I, I pick my fabrics just as much on feel as I do on um, on the actual look. I think that's a huge factor, like the breathability and the weave and all of that stuff is something that 
a lot of brands overlook um, and is really important to me as a, a consumer. So I, I wanted to kind of um, obviously uh, prioritize that in, in my own clothes that I make. So, um, so yeah, so the markets have been huge and um, Instagram is huge. All of these things um, just kind of constantly tapping along the different channels. Um, it's, it's, it's never, um, it's never as simple as it looks from the outside, I guess. No, it's never. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. So it's, it's, it takes, oh, and we started, we just started doing, um, uh, consignment with a couple and wholesale with a couple local shops. So, um, we're looking to expand into that. Uh, but again, it's hard to navigate that with dead stock because we have so li- like such limited quantities of, of items um, that it's tr- it's been tricky for me to kind of wrap my head around what items do I for sure want to sell on my website versus what items am I okay giving to a shop and not um, having availability on my website. Like all of that stuff is um, it's just decisions, lots of decisions. Yeah. And what are like what is the legality around labeling a garment in terms of the fabrication for dead stock cuz like you said you don't know exactly so have you really like dived into what the tag has to say or what it, what's that all look like Um as far as my understanding of it um is that it just needs to be labeled that it's it's recycled dead stock fabric Oh, interesting. Um, like we can't claim that it's anything else. Um, I I say on the website what um, what our kind of um, guesstimate for the fabric is, um, like whether it's based out of linen or, or the majority linen or cotton. Um, and we do do burn tests, which um, is is basically for for listeners that um, aren't sure about that. It's um, you basically just take a clip of your fabric and um, you burn it. <laughs> so um, if it burns, like incense or wood or um, uh, anything natural, like a leaf, um, then you have, uh, and it's also based on smell, but for the majority of clips. Um, so for if it burns, then it's a natural fiber, but if mm-hmm. it melts, um, you have, you have a synthetic fiber, um, right, like a polyester or something. Plastic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. um, so we do do the burn test. Um, and so that gives us a little bit more of a, a concrete kind of, um, place to know whether or not we're dealing with all natural. And I, I try and choose all naturals. Um, um, but yeah. Cool. And so what does your like production timeline look like? And are you going back to Bali often? Or are you going or, or just ordering now remote since you have a relationship with this, this woman who I don't, is she sewing everything herself? Or is there a little factory or it's, it's like a porch off of her house. Um, oh, that's so has, cool. <laughs> yeah, she has, she has two. Um, well, there's one boo. is like the main seamstress. Um, and she's like an absolute miracle worker. She's amazing. And then um, Pak Toot is the pattern maker. So he like takes all of my crazy ideas and <laughs> turns them into a reality. Um, and then there's another assistant, um, uh, Kachoot, that they just hired to like help kind of um, handle everything. And uh, 
the it's it's a really sad story, but um, so it might not want to be aired. But it's um, uh, my friend that I I kind of started the company and my main artisan and the woman that I worked with actually passed away last month, um, and so that's why I was back there just recently um, for the two weeks is because they hired somebody to kind of take over um, her job as as production manager, but. Um, but yeah, so, um, so we're right now we're just kind of trying to navigate that. Um, we were set up so that we were just kind of drop ship everything. Um, we're not drop ship, but like I was going to go pick up fabric like six months in advance and then, um, they were just kind of going to keep on sending us shipments but okay um but we're now we have to see i guess again small business you just like there's so many things to navigate and um and that's uh yeah (laughs) okay so you were initially getting set up to where you could go maybe twice a year look at all the fabrics pick them all and then they would slowly make them and send you boxes that you could just keep adding to your website or to wholesale or to pop-up shops or stuff like that Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. Just add to the inventory. But yeah. um, I think I think we're just delayed um, like two or three months now with that. Um, I do think it's a reality, but it's just a matter of now getting this new team member um, up to speed and, and making sure that the quality is there. So yeah. I'm going to be back um, next month for a planned trip um, and um, and be working on production and, and um, getting all that inventory ready. Okay. Do you have pictures of like this woman sewing on her porch, like on your Instagram or something? Yeah. Well, there's lots on the website and then, um, I can send you like a whole folder if you'd like. Yeah. I would love to share. Cause like, I just got the most amazing visual when you told that story and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to see what this really looks like. So I would love yeah. to get some pictures to share in the show notes for the, the podcast write up. Um, so everybody else can kind of get a behind the scenes glimpse of what this looks like. That'd be really cool. Yeah, um, absolutely. I will for sure. Okay. That was another really amazing thing about working in Bali. Well, Bali just in general is like a magic land. Um, I love it there. And uh, but I, when I got to Bali, it just everything was was easy, um, or at least so much easier to do than than I had been at home. And mm. um, and just by kind of trusting that, trusting and like going with the flow and and. Um, and taking the opportunities when they came, um, everything just fell into place. It was really amazing. And, and I really lucked out. And I think it's really important um, for, for young designers and especially people that don't have um, experience in the fashion industry to have a pattern maker that, um, that has a really good relationship with a, a seamstress um, or a tailor that... Um, can they can work as a team to make take your scribbles and your drawings and your ideas and and turn it into something real um because as far as like a a team as a whole I'm definitely lacking on the the um the skills to communicate that in the the typical way so yeah they it's been awesome having them kind of compensate for me um and and work with me in, in communicating those designs in the ways that I can. Yeah. Wait, I want to hear a little bit more about your comment in that you feel like it's been 
everything over in Bali has felt a lot easier than it was feeling when you were trying to do it at home, which is in L.A. And I think for a lot of people that might sound like, well, God, like doing it in L.A., though, like it's in your backyard. You have such better, easier access to the people, the, the you know, go check protos or um, prototypes or samples or whatever it may be. And now you're like ac- across the world, but you're saying it's easier. And I'd love to hear kind of the compare and contrast of those two different situations where it could look so it could it could for someone listening, I think it could feel so easy to think, oh, if you're in LA, everything's at your fingertips to do this, but you're saying, no, it was actually really hard. Once I got to Bali, everything felt easy. Yeah. So there's just, um, in LA, I found, I kept on coming up against walls as far as, um, especially access to information. Um, but then trying to make, um, small batches of, of items or, or what have you, if somebody did have a small, like a manufacturer that was able to do small batches, they, um, they really kind of like hold that information close to the cuff and, and don't want to share that, that resource. Um, again, it's just, it's, it was, it was more about information and coming as an outsider. And I just couldn't, I had a really hard time tapping into it. Um, as, as far as the manufacturing, aspects of it and I think it was it was probably a telltale because I wasn't using the right language Mm -hmm. I didn't know the whole process I didn't even know like what I needed to be asking for so it was a matter of like just trying to to read and figure it out as much as possible and um and then investigate it but it would still be so so difficult or or it seemed so expensive or I had to commit to a like large quantities um before really under like knowing the the quality and all of that stuff so um and I didn't like the fabric as much I was gonna have to kind of make sacrifices from a um like a um like not moral but um just like I I was gonna have to make sacrifices as far as like using dead stock fabric or using synthetics or whatever. Um, and I didn't really want to make those. So, um, coming to Bali, they had, first of all, people are just so generous with their time and information. Um, it's, it's almost like a switch that I have to turn off and on in my brain because I'm so used to being home. And if I have a question, I just figure it out, um, and do the research and, and look it up or, or talk to people, um, that I, I know are experts in it, but in, in Bali, I found that I, um, everybody is a resource and everybody has information and, and they're so like willing and, um, and kind about how they share it. Um, whether it's connecting you with their friend that handles shipping or, um, or explaining where they get their leather from or where they got their dead stock. Like it's, they, they share these things so openly that, um, in the States, uh, it, it would be just unheard of. Which is like so weird to me because I mean, I'm a big, like I kind of, um, 
I, I lean more towards the Bali mentality. I'm like, just share right. it, you know, share the resources and help everybody. And it all means better for all of us in the end, because now look at you, you're giving them business and you're continuing to order. Whereas you're working with a supplier or a factory or whoever it is in LA. And it sounds like they have their walls up really high, which in, in the long run, I think does them as a business a disservice to a lot of people like you who are out there that like you're like I want to give you business and it's you're preventing me from doing that right absolutely yeah that's so fascinating um so so what are you looking at next for like the next six to 12 to 18 36 months what are your plans for the brand um so we are adding a couple new styles which I'm really excited about and then um then continuing to work with um, new partners here in LA um, as far as the sales channel. Um, my goal for, you know, um, long-term, I'm not sure if this will be in the next um, like 18 months or a couple years, but I'd, um, I'd really like to start um, uh, brand- moving outside of Jess Bali. Um, so working with different communities around the world um, and, um, creating designs and, and, um, working with makers there, um, that, um, pull inspiration from local communities while also benefiting the, the local community. Um, so, and, and creating a, a brand that, um, kind of shows this, this melting pot that, um, of, of styles and textures and history that I really am drawn to and love. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I'd love to also dig a little bit more into the the wholesale stuff that you're working on. I know you said you're doing some consignment with some boutiques, as well as the um, I don't know if if I'm I don't know what you call them, like the little studio open houses you're doing. How yeah. are you making those things happen? Um, because like, I think you could think, okay, I, can, I have a studio where I do all my stuff. You don't just like open the doors and people walk in. Um, and then same with selling wholesale, like. How are you building, promoting, advertising, getting these relationships with boutiques to get your product in the door? Can you give us some specific strategies that you've done to build those two sales channels? Okay. So for um, the the open houses, I um, it's just about staying in, in it kind of in the forefront of people's minds. One, actually... Um, getting that information out, like telling people that you're going to have an event. I think when something is your baby, for some reason, there's this weird ego attached to it that makes it really hard, at least for me, to to tell people, especially when I'm going to sell it. There's something there's something that like is just I'm bad at it and I have to push myself to do it. Um, so it's it's I, I do that by Instagram posts and emails and and texting um, my my like my friends and letting people know um, the Instagram stories is great because um, you can kind of um, provide like a live feed of of what's happening at the at the event and and again keep on kind of popping up at the the front of people's um, kind of thoughts. Um, so that's been huge, um, and then. As far as the um, the wholesale and, and consignment, like working with the, the small little shops around here in LA, um, we had, well, I'm lucky in that I have my husband and 
another good friend um, that works in sales, um, kind of working on that. But um, I, again, it's all just kind of been very bootstrapped and very, uh, dare it, like made up <laughs> as far as how we go about it. Um, uh, my friend Matt is um, is very outgoing and not shy in the slightest. Um, so he just started having conversations with, um, I had done a little bit of research, but then he started had, having conversations with little shops and, and just really going to town and asking them what they needed and showing them Instagram posts and kind of getting, gauging the interest and then following up. And he's great with following up with like our lookbook and, um, and, uh, all of the information that they would actually need to, to post and then fostering that relationship. So that's, that's been how that's been going. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, and I feel so, so blessed to have um, him and, and Alex as a, a resource on that. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's basically with all of this stuff, I, I think with any company that, that you run yourself, um, but especially with clothing, um, if it, you just have to do it. <laughs> like nobody else is going to do it for you. You're not going to be like, or maybe you will, that'd be really awesome. And I'd be really stoked for you, but you're not going to be in like an overnight success. Um, just because somebody saw one thing and yeah. um, you have to keep putting yourself out there and, um, keep pushing things forward. And it's really scary. And, um, and, and, overwhelming at times but when it works out it's really really awesome yeah it's like at the end of the day you just have to do the legwork to make it all happen like you have to go out there and knock on all those boutique doors and have conversations and show them the product and like not be afraid to to share and to tell people about what you're doing and not being afraid to sell in you know a non-scuzzy way um, but right. you just kind of have to keep doing that keep plugging away over and over um to make any of this happen yeah yeah you're you're the only one that's going to do it another yeah. big thing that i just thought of um for me that was a big kind of turning point is initially i was just doing the website and i would have little events but um it was pretty much just people that i knew that were showing up for them um and doing my first market um was huge for me like so so big not not just from like the perspective where I was I was making sales and all of that that's great but when you're alone with your baby or at least this happens for me like when I'm alone with basically any art that I create but especially clothing and I start to second guess things I get in my head like should I have done this fabric or I don't like that fabric or whatever, because I just have too much time with it and it's not selling. And so I want to know why. <laughs> right. And so I was, I was my own harshest critic. Like I was, I was being so hard on myself and, um, my first market getting to see people interact with the clothes and having 99.9% of the interactions be positive And then the, the few that were like, oh, I wish this was a little different or, oh, I'd like that cut's not for me or whatever um, was also amazing for me personally because that's that just it ends up impacting how I design down the road. Like if um, I design for what I know, which is 
which is my body, but seeing it on all these different people and, and, um, hearing about what they, they look for in clothing, um, was massive. So I think if, if I could go back and tell myself, like getting it out to people that you don't know, that aren't just like your friends and family that are going to tell you it's wonderful no matter what. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and talking about it and hearing people's, um, like actual opinions on the item um, was, was so huge for me. Yeah. Um, and so valuable. Yeah, that firsthand interaction and just getting to watch people interact with your product is absolutely priceless in real life with strangers. You learn so much. Yeah, yeah. And everybody talks about just how wonderful digital is and and um, it is really awesome, but you, you're you missing that component of, of hearing back from people and, and, um, and, and listening to those those first interactions. Um, yeah. So um, that's been, that's been really awesome. Yeah. And we, we don't have too much time to dig too deep into the email stuff, but obviously you had a background in that, which um, as, as people are more and more learning and understanding, like email is priceless to be able to get in, get in touch and stay in touch with your customers. I would assume or imagine that when you do these market, like obviously you have your website and I, you know, there's a way to sign up for your email list there. But when you do these markets, you're also getting people on your list that you're continuing to build this audience that you can say hello to every once in a while and let them know what's going on with the product and let them know when something new is, is introduced. Um, is that something you're doing? Yes. Yeah, okay, it is cool. absolutely. So, um, if somebody is is looking at an item and they are excited, well, first I have I just have a book that where people sign up, yeah, um, and then I convert that over, and then um, it's really great with Square, and um, I, I'd assume with a lot of the other um, point of sales um, uh, apps and services that um, it actually collects a lot of the emails, so. Um, if you can kind of phrase it right, you can um, you can have people sign up basically via the transaction, um, yeah. which just cuts out another step, and it's, yeah. it's really been great for me. Um, cool. But yeah, that's and then also having like postcards or business cards that talk about the company, um, not just say the name and the website, um, was is also it, that's been a big thing, um, just so that when people see the card, they it's not just another one of the cards that they picked up while they were out of market. Um, it's, it has some meaning and, and the stories there for them yeah. to kind of like remember. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Cause kind of telling like what's the backstory behind the brand and why you started it and how all this stuff works with the dead stock fabric is such a cool selling point and something that, you know, it, it makes it a purchase beyond or an item beyond another dress. Like it, there's this really cool story behind it. Um, is really important. And I bring up the email thing only because I've heard too many people say, well, nobody told me I should be collecting emails and I did all these markets for five years and I just never thought about it. And then it's like, wow, what could I have built over those five years? So I throw that out there just as like, you guys, if you're out there, you know, you got to be collect emails, collect emails (laughs) and keep in touch with people. Um, and there's a great episode I'll mention in the show notes with a um, woman named Virginia who talks a lot about email marketing. So I'll, I'll link to that episode in the show notes if you guys want some more information on that. Um, so I'd love to end with the one question I ask everybody at the end of the interview, and that is, what is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would? 
I get it a little bit, but not to the extent that I, I would like to talk about it. And that's um, the impact of, um, of, of fashion and, and where we can go from here. I love talking about the science and the, um, the kind of new um, potential that's coming up on, um, in sustainable fashion. Mm. Interesting. There's, so what are a couple like key points you would love to, to throw out there right now about that? Yeah. So if you're thinking of starting your own line, um, I think it's really important. It's awesome to create beautiful things, but, um, we are at a point where, um, there's, there's more to fashion than just creating beautiful things. We have to be cognizant of, of the impact that it has on, on the environment and on the people that are actually making it, um, there's a really awesome quote um, that um, says, uh, it's, I'm going to totally botch it, but um, the gist of it is that if you're buying something for cheap, um, you might not be paying, um, but, but somebody else or um, somewhere else is paying. So whether that's the environment or the people that are making it or the people that are harvesting the cotton, um, uh, fashion and clothing is such a, a hands-on um, and uh, labor-intense um, industry that, as makers and as um, as the people behind um, what's being created, I think it's it's really important for us to be as responsible and cognizant of of our impact as possible. Yeah. Um, and there are some really really cool innovations that are coming out, like um, hemp that is um, basically a silk but completely biodegradable. So it's it's like a, you can toss it's basically you're making like a compostable coat, which is awesome. But, wow. That is really um, cool. And just, and stuff using recycled fabrics, just the more that we support that stuff, the, the farther it's going to go and, and the better, um, fashion as an industry is going to get. So, um, yeah, yeah. that's, Very that's cool. what really excites me, I guess. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and where can everybody find you online or connect with you and find more of, out about Eno Black? So uh, the website is enoblack.com. So it's E-N-O-B-L-A-C-K.com. Cool. And uh, our Instagram is enoblackla. Same with Facebook. And um, yeah, if anybody has any questions, feel free to shoot me an email at evaenoblack.com. Um, yeah, that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been really, really fun to chat with you and learn about all the cool stuff you're working on. Um, your story is so cool. I can't wait to share it with everybody. Um, so thank you, Eva. Really lovely to talk to you. Yeah, you too. The pleasure's been all mine. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Thank you so much, Eva, for chatting. It was really wonderful to get to know you. Um, I really do appreciate each and every one of you listeners out there. As always, if you enjoyed this episode or if you enjoy the podcast in general, please do me a favor and share with just one friend or one person you know who you think would enjoy it as well. This is the best way to get more people listening and to get more people the advice, the insights, the strategies that they need to figure out how to make it in this cut cutthroat and competitive industry where people are known for secrets and people are known for not sharing and I do my best with this podcast to help bring that insider knowledge to you help open up behind the scenes what's really going on how people are really doing things and give you the knowledge you need to succeed in this industry no matter what you're trying to do so please help everybody out by sharing this episode with one friend 
Again, if you'd like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes at sfdnetwork.com slash 69. Thanks so much, you guys, and I'll talk to you in the next Successful Fashion Designer podcast episode.